The strange writing on this clay brick is known as cuneiform. Now, this script was used for hundreds of years in ancient Mesopotamia. Here, international presenter Gary Webster and travel with him to ancient Babylon and the island of Patmos to discover how ancient mysteries reveal the future. The Battle of Armageddon, of course, has met. There are many different ideas concerning this great battle, the mother of all battles, say some. Hollywood's had its version, meteors smashing into the planet or going to, and of course, Hollywood to the rescue and so on. There are many people today who believe that here on this valley, known as the Valley of Jezreel in Israel, Many people believe that all the armies of the world will be gathered here to this place for the great Battle of Armageddon. Well, the Battle of Armageddon is mentioned in only one place in the Bible, though it is uh, talked about in other places, but not mentioned by name. Now, what we want to understand this morning is what the Battle of Armageddon is all about. And we're going to see very clearly what the Battle of Armageddon is about this morning. It's a very important mention in the Bible concerning this battle. Now, to understand the Battle of Armageddon, however, it is put within the context, or we will put it within the context of what the Bible calls the thousand years. You may have heard of this. Millennium. It's a name meaning one thousand. Milli meaning a thousand, annum years. So the thousand years. It's found in Revelation 20, but we're going to discover that the Battle of Armageddon leads into it, and we can only understand it, in that context. All right, so millennium, the 1,000 years. When we go to the book of Revelation, we discover in Revelation 20 that the 1,000 years has two resurrections, one at the beginning and one at the end. These are mentioned also by Jesus Christ in the Gospels. There is a first resurrection that starts the thousand years called the resurrection of life there. And then a thousand years later, there is a second resurrection known as the resurrection of condemnation in the Bible. Let's notice it. Here we go. Revelation 20. John's, oh, this is sorry, this is John's gospel here. Jesus is speaking and he talked about these two resurrections, though he didn't tell us how far apart they were in the gospel of John. The Bible says, do not marvel. At this, for the hour is coming in the which all who are in the graves will hear his voice. Notice that everybody in the grave will hear his voice. And it says, and come forth. Those who have done good, he says, to the resurrection of life. Those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So he says two resurrections, a resurrection to life and a resurrection to condemnation. He doesn't tell us how far apart they are in this passage in John's gospel. It's when Jesus talks to John on the island of Patmos that he shows us how far apart those two resurrections are, in fact. Now let's begin with the first resurrection, the resurrection of life. Now, notice what John says in Revelation. This is the first resurrection, and he tells us who takes part in this one, just like Jesus did. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. He says, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for how long? 
1,000 years. You see the first resurrection, and they're going to reign with him for 1,000 years. It begins the 1,000 years. And we saw last week down at the Hornsby Theatre there that this is called the Blessed Hope this time, this event, part of the Blessed Hope. Remember last week we noticed that when Jesus returns, he raises his friends to life. We talked about that. We won't go into it now. Not only that, but he reunites his friends who were torn apart by death. He reunites them at that time. We will be to get together. We will see the Lord, we, mem- we mentioned. And then he gives his friends new young eternal bodies at this time. And finally, he takes his children home to heaven with him. This is all very clear in the discussion of the return of Jesus. Now, notice this statement here. I want us to see, first of all, that those who are raised to life, they go to heaven at this point in time. Notice what it says. Jesus is talking here. In my father's house, I like that idea. It's like a, it's like a great house and there are rooms in that house and we get to live with God and his son in that house. In my father's house are many mansions. They're mansion rooms. <laughs> Pretty good, isn't it? I go to prepare a place for you. And he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. He said, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place. Now, where's the father's house? We mentioned the other day, every time we say the Lord's Prayer, we indicate where the father's house is. What does it say? Our father who is in heaven. So Jesus makes it plain. He's going to take us at that first resurrection and those who didn't die but are raised with his friends who were dead they're going to be caught up together they go to the father's house now here's the question that someone has which we didn't look at last week when it comes to the return of Jesus what about those people who have lost their moral compass in other words those who cling to no one's sin they hold on to it they will not give it to God they will not allow Jesus to take their sin what happens to those people in other words what happens to the enemies of God's friends because in the end of time when Jesus comes these people will turn on God's friends John mentions that in the revelation very clearly this brings us to the last great battle Armageddon this is what takes place and I want you to notice that we're going to have a look at it for a few moments here the battle of Armageddon is mentioned in the sixth plague. There are seven plagues mentioned in Revelation in chapter 16, but it's the sixth plague that this battle is first mentioned. Notice what it says here. They, by the way, we'll take more time on this coming in next weekend, I think it is. They are the spirits of demons, John says, performing signs or miracles which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them, he says, to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And they gather them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. Do you notice something about this battle of Armageddon? Notice what John says. The battle of Armageddon is the battle of God. Now, the actual battle itself is actually what takes place in the seventh plague. The sixth plague, it's the gathering to that great battle which takes place under plague number seven. Now, I want you to notice very clearly, this is not man's battle. The Bible says it's God's battle. That's what it's called. The battle of the great day of God Almighty. Now let's notice the seventh plague, and I want you to notice something here. Then the seventh angel 
poured out his bowl on, into the air, and there was a great earthquake. Notice that. Under the seventh plague, there's a humongous earthquake. Then every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. Now, you may remember that last week we talked about the seven seals. I'm sure you've not forgotten that. And one of those seals, we noticed, mentions a great earthquake. When we come to the sixth seal, notice what John says. Then the sky receded as a scroll. So it rolled up. And every mountain and every island was moved out of its place. This is a great earthquake, you see, the same as John has talked about in Revelation 19. Every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves, he says, and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? And we started looking at the answer to that question last weekend. Who can stand on this great day? This is the return of Jesus that's pictured here. Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords, and many people sadly run from him, run from the lamb that actually died to save them because they never hid themselves in the lamb. Now let's come to Armageddon for a moment. This is the battle of Armageddon. Why does it use this language? Well, you'll see now. Remember, Revelation is full of many symbols, many symbols, the lamb uh, and so on. We are seeing them. The dragon represents Satan. Now, Armageddon, this means, comes from two Hebrew, two Greek words. Ah, meaning mountain here. Mountain. And that's the word for mountain. And Megiddo was a city fortress. It was a very strategic place in the ancient world, Megiddo. It was on a great trade route where armies came through this place as well. It's uh, today in Israel. But here we are on Tel Megiddo. In fact, I showed you this in our very first program. It's a civilization mound, Megiddo, overlooking this great valley or plain of Jezreel. And uh, this place here had about 30 civilization levels here in Megiddo. Now you can see the view you have here from that great plain, that great valley in the background there, known as the plain of Jezreel. Now the word Megiddo, Ha Megiddo, the word Megiddo means slaughter or destruction. That's the meaning of that word. And so you put the two together, Ha Megiddo or Armageddon, Megiddo, it means the mount of slaughter or of destruction. Now you think about this valley. This valley here in Bible times, in ancient times, was the site of many great strategic battles in ancient times. By the way, Solomon controlled this hill when he was king of Israel. The Egyptians controlled it at various times in their history when they were in charge of Palestine. But it was the site, this valley, of many great battles. One, for example, that I'm sure we're all familiar with is the Battle of Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon. Gideon came here. Now, you may remember the enemies of Israel, the Midianites, had conquered Israel and were harassing the Israelites for many years. And God raised up a judge or a deliverer named Gideon. And Gideon, with just 300 men, defeated thousands of Midianites on this great plain here, or the Valley of Jezreel. It was a victory that God gave Gideon 
You don't beat thousands and thousands of enemy soldiers without the power of God when you've only got 300, and God made that very plain in the book of Judges. By the way, this is the site of the great conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. You may remember the story. When Elijah was on Mount Carmel, fire came down from God out of heaven and consumed the sacrifice in front of everybody. And then what did Elijah do with those prophets of Baal who had led all of Israel away from God, away from his commandments and into terrible sin? And we mentioned Baal worship in one of our previous programs, human sacrifice, temple prostitution. It was a disgusting religion. And that's why God said, don't have anything to do with it. And those priests had led all of Israel astray. So what happened? Well, <clears throat> the priests of Baal were taken from the top of Mount Carmel. This is the Mount Carmel range here, overlooks this area. And this is just near Megiddo here. And he brought them down to the valley of Jezreel, down to the little stream here. And he had them all executed. And if you visit Mount Carmel up on top, you can see the prophet Elijah with his sword raised and his foot on one of the, these men that he's slaying because they had led all Israel astray. So it was the place of slaughter. It's the place where God delivered Israel from their pagan enemies, if you like, the priests of Israel who become Baal worship. It's the place where God delivered Israel from their enemies, the Midianites and so on. Great battles fought on this place. Now, let's go back to the story of Revelation. When you go to the book of Revelation, and we haven't yet come to it, but we're coming to it, Babylon the Great leads people to false worship. We mentioned it last night. Three powers, a dragon, a land beast and a sea beast lead the whole world to attack God's people, which are called remnant, meaning the faithful in the end of time. They lead to false worship and they attack God's children in the end of time. And that's when John depicts in chapter 19, Jesus is pictured as coming on a white horse to deliver his people from their enemies. Now, Jesus is not coming down the sky on a horse. It simply means just like in ancient times, when people were captured and taken captive by a foreign king, the king of those people who were captured, they would come to deliver the, their people from their enemies. That's the picture we have in Revelation. So Jesus is now pictured as coming to deliver his people from their enemies who are attacking them in the end of time. So let's notice what happens. And this is the battle of Armageddon. It uses that language as well, the war language. Notice what it says. John says, now this is chapter 19. We're moving into chapter 20 here. I saw heaven opened. And behold, a white horse. In other words, truth and righteousness. This is God's great cause. He who sat on it judges and what does he do? He makes war. There's a battle going to take place. And his name is called the Word of God. And out of his mouth, he says, goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. You notice this phrase keeps coming up, the wrath of God. God's destruction on those who hold to sin and lead people astray. This is the great thing that people face. That's why the Bible, from beginning to end, really is a cry, flee the wrath to come. Don't, don't go down that track. Turn away. That's what God is calling people down through time in the word of God. Now, John says, I saw the beast. That's the beast from the sea. He says, and the kings of the earth. 
and their armies, notice armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and he says, with him the false prophet who deceived those who received the mark of the beast. And we'll talk about that next weekend. What's that mark all about? These two were cast alive into the lake, burning with brimstone, the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And he says the rest of them were killed with the sword, the sword of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Now, that's not a very nice picture, is it? And you wonder sometimes why these things are written in the Bible. Let me tell you why they're written in the Bible. We don't like the idea of the wrath of God and the destruction that is coming on those who hold on to sin. But let me tell you why. You imagine we have a parent here who says to their little kids, now listen, uh, mommy says, don't play on the highway. It's not a safe place. Don't play there because the truck will run you down and we want you to live. So one day mum's at the kitchen sink in the kitchen that overlooks the front yard and the highway. And while she's standing there at the kitchen sink, she sees her little Susan playing right beside the freeway. Now, do you think the mother is going to sort of think to herself, man, what am I going to do here? I don't want to upset my little Susan. So do you think she's going to go tipping, towing down the lawn beside little Susan and whisper in her ear, don't get on the road, don't play here, it's dangerous. you think she's going to, no, no, she's going to open that window, she's going to scream out at the top of her lungs, Susan, get back here, you're going to get killed, man. <laughs> you know what I mean? The mother's heart cries out a strong message to her kid because she loves him or her, not because she doesn't like them. She just knows the danger is so grave, this demands action immediately. There's no time. She could get killed. Now, this is what God is doing in Revelation with some of these messages. He can see there's a truck coming to run over his kids who he's created. He can see what's going to take place, and so he gives strong messages in the Bible, not because he doesn't love, but because he does love, you see. Sometimes God has to shout. Other times God whispers to us, but this is no time for whisper. This is a time to get people's attention because the danger is great and people are in great danger. All right, so here comes the battle of Armageddon. Now, let me tell you, the battle of Armageddon is not a place, a battle between the great nations of this world. Millions of Chinese or millions of Americans or whoever it is. Let me tell you, the nations of the world's armies would never fit in this valley. It's too small. Now, this is a global conflict. When Jesus comes, God's people in all places are going to be under attack from their enemies, the Bible says, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet globally. God's people will be in dire straits. But Jesus comes as King of kings and Lord of lords to rescue his people. But to rescue his people, he must put down their enemies. They must be destroyed because they are destroying his children and this is the only way so this is what this is talking about in the bible the battle of armageddon is the great battle that takes place between god and those who cling to know and sin and hold on and are attacking the friends of god now you will notice all who cling to sin are destroyed the dragon sorry the beast it says he's thrown into the fire and so is the false prophet he's thrown in there and everybody with them the bible says Notice that, that we read a moment ago. Listen, when Jesus comes and those who cling to sin 
have not given it to Jesus, they will be destroyed. That's the picture we have. What's the mean the, the birds of the air? This is a picture of destruction in the ancient world. When the buzzards, the vultures flew around, it meant that had, there had been destruction. And that's the picture the Bible uses. The people have been destroyed totally, completely. Only God's friends, Jesus, has taken them with him. So there is no second chance. Many people believe that when Jesus comes, people will be taken out of the world quietly and secretly. We mentioned that last week. And those left will have a chance to repent. No, no, no. There is no second chances. This is why the Bible always says today is the day. Now is the time, not tomorrow. Today, today, today is the way the Bible picks things. There's no time to change our mind during the thousand years. When Jesus comes, those who cling to sin, they are destroyed. And that's the picture we have in Revelation. Sinners destroyed at Christ's coming. Now, as I said, we may not like this, but the Bible talks about this again and again. Because God loves us and wants us to flee the wrath to come. Now notice what John says here. But the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. So those who die when Jesus comes, not taken with God, not the friends of God who are dead or alive, who are taken to be with God, those who are destroyed or those who have clung to sin, they stay dead for a thousand years, according to John here. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Now someone says, what? What about Satan? What about that dragon? We see what happens to the beast and all those who are part of the beast and the, 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 the one from the sea and the land. What happens to this dragon guy, Satan himself? What happens here? Well, let's notice. John says this being is bound for 1,000 years. Let's go to Revelation. John says, Then I saw an, an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold, he says, on the dragon, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. And he bound him for a thousand years and he cast him into the bottomless pit. And it says he shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, what is all that about? I'm sure that's the question in your mind this morning. So let's answer that. Let's have a look here. Where is the bottomless pit, first of all? Is there some black hole in space that God drops this being into? No, not at all. Let's notice this phrase, the bottomless pit. The word it comes from in the Greek is the word abyss or abusos. This is the Greek word. That's translated bottomless pit here in Revelation chapter 20. This, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek language, I want you to notice how the Greek language, the word that's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. We'll go to two places. Let's go to Genesis chapter 1. The Bible begins with, in the beginning was the, in the beginning God created. You know the chapter, chapter 1. But notice what it says about the earth. The earth was without form. And it was void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. Now that word without form and void comes from the Greek word, the translation of the Old Testament word, abusos, abyss. It's the earth without form and void. Let's go to Jeremiah's writings now. Jeremiah is predicting the coming destruction by God that we're talking about in Revelation here. Notice what Jeremiah says. I beheld the earth, he says. 
And indeed it was without form and void. This is the same word abusos, abyss. But he says it's the earth. Now notice what it looks like. And the heavens, they had no light. There's darkness. I beheld the mountains and indeed they trembled. There's been a great earthquake here. And he says, all the hills moved back and forth. That's an earthquake, right? I beheld, and indeed there was no man. Everybody's gone, destroyed in other words. And all the birds of the heavens fled. They've picked on the bones. They've gone, so to speak. A picture of destruction here, in other words, in the ancient world. And I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down. And all at the presence of the Lord, he says, by his fierce anger or his wrath. You can see Jeremiah is predicting the same thing that John has predicted in Revelation. They're looking at the same event. But John says the earth, sorry, Jeremiah says the earth is without form and void. In other words, it's a chaos. It's a desolation after God has had to put down evil. So in other words, the bottomless pit is actually this planet. It's the earth in chaos. After Christ returns, the battle of Armageddon is over. This world is in a mess on this planet. It's a chaotic place. The Bible puts puts that picture for us. Now, how is Satan bound? Is Satan going to be bound because an angel comes down and puts a big iron chain around Satan? Well, no, that's not going to happen like that. This is a symbolic passage. You may remember in the stories of Jesus, if you've read them, that on some occasions... The human beings were bound with a chain, people who were possessed with demons. There is a great story in the Gospels of two men who were crazy men because they were filled with demons and these men were bound with chains, but they snapped those chains like they were pieces of cotton. Why? Because the demons were in them. You don't bind a demon or a devil with a chain. He can snap that easy. Now, this is not an iron chain. This is representing something. Let's notice. First of all, where are God's friends at this time? Well, there's a hint on the screen. (laughs) They've gone to heaven. Satan cannot get at God's friends. Why? Because we read a moment ago, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. We read that last week, but John says, and Paul says, and Jesus says, they are taken to be with Jesus. He takes them to his father's house. He cannot get these people. They are beyond his reach because the Lord takes them with him to the Father's house, my Father's house in heaven. What about the people who cling to sin? Can Satan continue to work on these people? No, because they've all been destroyed. We just read a moment ago, and Paul talks about in Thessalonians, they are destroyed with the brightness of his coming. And John pictures this great fight when the dragon... Sorry, the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, and all people who are with them are completely destroyed. Total destruction. So can the devil get these people and work on these people? No, they've gone. They're not in existence anymore at this point in time. He's alone here with his imps. And so he has nobody to get to. In other words, he's bound. The very thing Satan's lived for, Jesus said, deception and destruction, he can do neither because there's nobody to work on. So he's bound by this chain. It's like a chain of circumstances. Let me put it this way. If I said to you, listen, Uh, On Monday morning, I'm going back to Hobart, and I'll be back next weekend. And you said to me, well, look, would you mind bringing a parcel for me from one of my friends? I said, sorry, I can't. My hands are tied. You don't think I'm going to get on that plane at Sydney with my hands tied by a piece of rope while I travel back to Hobart. You you, you know what I mean. You mean 
you know that I mean, means the circumstances are such that I can't do what you asked me to do because, you know, I'm dropping into Hobart and I'm flying, going, walk, driving straight up to Launceston. I have no time in, in Hobart because I'm going to fly out of Launceston. So my hands are tight, not behind my back. But the circumstances prohibit me from doing that. Well, that's the picture we have here. What is it that binds Satan? The circumstances. Nobody to get to, nobody to deceive, nobody to destroy, because God's friends have gone to the Father's house and those who cling to sin are totally destroyed. So he's bound by these circumstances. That's the chain. Now, what are God's friends doing during the thousand years now? What's happening to God's friends? They've gone to heaven. What are they doing? Having a holiday? Well, I guess so, partly. But the Bible makes it very specifically what, specific what these people are doing. Notice what it says. Talking about, first of all, those who cling to sin. The rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. Then he tells us about the first resurrection. He says, this is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they shall be, he says, priests with God, priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. So now what are they doing during this thousand years? Notice what John says. Revelation 20 verse 4, I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So in, ever, in other words, God's friends are participating in some sort of a judicial process. He says judgment was given to them. Now I want you to think about that for just a moment. Evidently, God has this period of time, a thousand years, so that his people understand some things. They look in. They are participating in judgment. I want you to think about what would be taking place, for example, on that day. Let's just, let's just have a little bit of a, an imaginary experience. Let's say that you are all on this time, you are all home in heaven with God, but you look around and you say, where's that Webster guy? He's not there. God forbid that this should happen. But you wonder, where is that fellow? I mean, every weekend for five weekends or so, he was down there at the, the, uh, the, the Hornsby Theatre sharing these amazing prophecies from the Bible, but he's not here. You will wonder, no doubt, maybe there's a mistake going on here. God is not going to say to you, never you mind, I know what I'm doing, sort of thing. God is not like that. God will show you some things. You will understand by a judicial process why Webster's not here. And I can almost imagine you, you God may say to you, well, the Bible uses the term books. It means records are, are being kept. And so maybe in today's language, we might say the, the DVD or the, the MP3 or the whatever it is that we use to record information today. But we use the phrase books because that's the way people understand in ancient times because that's the way things were recorded in books. Now, so you have this question, where is Webster? So God says, well, come have a look. God's not going to hide things under the carpet and say, never you mind, I know what I'm doing. No, no, no. God will help you to understand his justice and what's going on. So you get the books open and you look and I can almost imagine you say, man, that Webster guy, look at this. He was cheating on his taxes, man. Hey, look, he had a couple of women on the sideline that his wife didn't even know about. You look, thank God that this guy never came in here to mess this thing up. You know what I'm saying? You will understand from the records. Now, this will become even more plain as we continue on in Revelation 20 because God makes it very plain that the reason for judgment is so that we can understand the character of God. We can understand what sort of a God is running this universe. 
All right. So for a thousand years, people are participating in a judicial process. And as we will see, one of the great reasons is so they might understand what is taking place. Do you not think that during this thousand years that there will have to be some sort of understandings going on? You think about it. Uh, uh, the, the wife of Bathsheba, remember David, stole a man's wife. Somebody's going to have to make some apologies down the track, right, in heaven, namely David. Because when, 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 when we get home, they're all going to be there. Uriah, who didn't know that David did this stuff, David, and this lady. Somebody's going to have to say, I'm sorry here. It's going to be plain. So this thousand years is an interesting time period where people are going to understand some things. People are going to be reconciled and so on to each other who've done some stuff to each other. No question. Now, this should not surprise us. God's friends participate in judgment because Paul actually wrote about this himself. If you've ever read the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, he mentions in his letter that these people in the church in Corinth were taking each other to court. In other words, this church member was taking another church member to a law court. And Paul says to these Corinthians, he says, come on here, you guys, give it a break. These are your brothers and sisters. Can't you sort out these problems among yourself? Why do you have to go to the law court to sort out these problems? And then he tells them, because one day they're going to be involved in a much bigger process than on planet Earth. Notice what Paul says as he talks about this judgment in the future. He says to these people, and he's chastising them because they're doing this, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? God's people. And then he says, do you not know that we shall judge angels, says Paul? What angels would he be having in mind? Well, of course, those angels who sided with the devil. God's people says Paul, are going to be one day involved in a judicial process. And that's exactly what Jesus says in Revelation to John. And it takes place during the thousand years. Now, you see, by the judgment process, as I mentioned, we are going to see that God is just and fair. And let me tell you, that's one of the real main reasons this subject is in the Bible. The millennium is here because all during this period and at the end of it and before is the judicial process. And here is why we have this subject in the Bible. God, God will be lifted up before people. Notice what it says. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear me? It means respect you. Love you. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations, he says, will come and worship before you. Why? For what reason? On what account will all the nations come and acknowledge that God is good? Because he says in yellow, for your judgments have been manifest or revealed. Got the idea? Now listen. If you know a little, bit, a little bit about judicial processes, you know that the court process of a country, any country, is an indication of what that country government is like. You don't want to go to a country and live where they have kangaroo courts because you may need those courts one day, right? You may be accused of doing something wrong which you never did and if the judicial process is a sham, you're in trouble. And it says a lot about the government behind the judicial process. It says this is a bunch of corruptness here. This cannot be trusted. 
So God has a judicial process and it says something about the God behind it, you see. And that's what the Bible is saying here. One day all nations will worship before God and they will do so. They will acknowledge God because his judgments have been revealed. Now let's have a look at the events during the thousand years now. So now we come to the looking at what took place during this thousand years. All right. Number one, the earth, the Bible says, we're just reviewing here. It's desolate. It's like a bottomless pit, desolation at, after what happened when Jesus returned. It's devastated. Number two, those who are unsaved, meaning those who cling to sin and will not give it up, they are dead. The ones who clung to sin before Jesus come and were in the grave, they stay there. Because the first resurrection is for the just and the holy. So those stay there. Those who cling to sin at the time of Jesus coming, who are alive when he comes, they are destroyed. We just read that in Revelation 19. That's what he says. So the unsaved are dead during the thousand years. Satan is bound to this planet. How so? Because he has no one to do anything with. We just mentioned those who love God are in heaven with Jesus and the Father. Those who turn their back on God, they are dead. He has nobody to work on. The saved are in heaven judging with Christ. They're participating in some sort of a judicial process where they begin and, and see very clearly what sort of a God God is, a just and a fair God. All right, what happens after the thousand years? Let's go to that now. What happens when we get to the end of this time period? Let's notice what John says. Now, when the thousand years have expired, when they're finished, Satan will be released from his prison, his bottomless pit, and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, calls them Gog and Magog, to gather them together to the battle. Now there's another battle going to take place here. Whose number is as the sand of the sea. He says they went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. Now let's picture what's going on here. There's some questions you should have in your mind right now. For one of them would be this. What about these nations? I thought you said they were all dead. Where did these nations come from? That the Bible just talked about. Satan deceives the nations. Where did they come from? Well, you forgot, perhaps, that there's a second resurrection after the thousand years are over. Remember, first resurrection is a resurrection to life. Those who accept Jesus who are dead, they're raised to life. But then there's a second resurrection at the end of the thousand years. Who's that for? We read it a moment ago. That's for those who cling to sin. So two resurrections. The first resurrection at the beginning is for those who have hidden their life in Christ, who have accepted Jesus and given their sins to God. The second resurrection is for those who cling to sin. They are raised to life again. We'll see why in a moment. But the rest of the dead, John says, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. There it is very clearly. That's when they come to life again. Whose number is as the sand of the sea. I think this is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. The number of those people who come up in the second resurrection is like the sands on the seashore. What a tragic verse. Jesus put it a little like this. He said, the road to the kingdom is narrow. And few go that way, but the road to destruction is broad and most go that way. Well, this is another picture of that, sadly. What a sad truth that is. Now, someone says, where did the city come from? Uh, they go up to take this city. Where did this city come from? 
John tells us where this city came from. He tells us when we get to chapter 21 where it came from because he gives a great picture of the city in chapter 21 and 22. Then I, John, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem in other words, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And he gives a description of it. So where did this city come from? It came from God out of heaven where God's people had been there for a thousand years, now this city comes down. What are the colossal city? If you've ever looked at Revelation 21 and 22, this is an incredible city. Talk about a space city that comes down. <laughs> this is the one from God out of heaven. It's kilometers, hundreds of kilometers long and wide. They went up. Now these are the people that have been raised to life now at the end of the thousand years. They went up, the Bible says, on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. You can almost see them there. Satan is leading them. We can take that city, the city of God and his people that are there. We can take that. There's more of us. And you can almost imagine the different people are outside that city with the devil. Great political, great military leaders of time and history. They go to take the city, the saints camp. Satan will be released from his prison. He'll go out to deceive the nations. You see something interesting here. Let's read on a bit. To gather them together to battle whose numbers is the sand of the sea. You can see what's happened here. And this is one of the reasons this is put in the Bible. Are the people who cling to sin any different after a thousand years in the grave or more? Are they any different? No, they're not different at all. They went in deceived by the devil, and when they come to life again, they are continually deceived by this being again. There has no change. In a thousand years of lying in the ground, they are no different when they come up the second time. A billion years, a trillion years would not change these people. They have made their decision, and they have fixed their decision. It's not because God doesn't want them to change. They just do not change. They're deceived by Satan and allowed him, and they're no different when they come up from the grave. He deceives them. We can take that city, and so they go to take it. But before they take that city, they surround it, they go to take it. Before that, day, that, that time comes, God has one final part of his great judgment process. It's called the great white throne judgment. Let's notice what it says. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, and he says, I saw the dead, small and great, powerful people, ordinary people, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the works by the things which were written in the books. In other words, God has been recording things, and now comes the time when people have to give account of themselves to God, those who have clung to sin. This is the time that takes place here. Now, the Bible puts it this way. Paul says there's coming a day when we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. This is the day when we stand in the flesh. You think of it. This is a unique moment in earth's history. Everybody is here who's ever lived since the time of creation till the end of time. Everybody's here. We're either inside the city or we're outside the city. It's a unique time for a very important reason. Why does God do this? Why does he have everybody who's ever lived alive at the same time? For this great reason we're going to see. God wants everybody to understand what, who he is, 
and why God has to do what God's about to do indeed. A unique moment. We're either inside that city on that day or you and I are outside the city on that day. That's it. Lost or saved is the dividing mark here between the people at this time. Now, I don't know how God's going to do it. Maybe God's going to put some great panoramic television in the sky. I don't know what. We, we, we do many things amazingly with technology today. However God's going to do it, I'm not sure. But God is going to allow everybody to see the great moments in time or whatever it is. I am sure on that day we will see the fall of Satan. Because we have to understand the justice and the love of God at this point in time. You can almost see, we see Satan as he conspired against God and he made his choices and he refused God's pleadings because God pleaded with this being. You read the book of Isaiah, oh, Lucifer, how you were full. You can hear the heart of God for this being who chose to go in his own way. We'll see, no doubt, and understand the great Our parents, when they chose to join the devil in his rebellion, not only the fall of Satan, but when man chose to join him. I'm sure we'll see the great moments of that took place in Noah's day when Noah pleaded with the world for 120 years to accept God's grace, but they refused. And only eight went into the boat and people pounded on that door wanting to get inside, but it was too late now. They had made their choice. They weren't really repentant. They were only afraid of what was going to happen. They weren't really sorry for their sin. Above all, on that day, we will understand the cross of Calvary and all that it stands for. The love of God for a lost world. We will understand very clearly on that occasion The love of God and the fairness of God. Is God a just God? Yes, he is. Because Jesus Christ himself went to Calvary because of sin, namely the world's sin. People will understand. Everybody will understand. I guess on that day, we will see, in our mind's eye, we will see those three angels flying over the planet. Not literal angels, but they represent messages for the end times. And I trust that we'll all be inside saying, thank God I listened to those three angels that flew over Hornsby at this time. Thank God I accepted the grace of God rather than I'm sorry that I didn't listen to those messages and heed their warnings. Then the Bible says, and Paul alludes to this in, in Romans when he checks it, says, all, we'll all give account on that day. We'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Notice what he says. Every knee shall bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. Now this doesn't mean that everybody believes God and accepts God's love, but they all acknowledge God. In fact, even the devil, because notice the way Paul puts it. Let's notice it here. All nations shall come and worship before me. Why? For your judgments have been manifested or revealed. In fact, Paul says those under the earth, and in, sorry, in the heavens and on the earth and under the earth. He means everybody, including the devil, will acknowledge the fairness of God. Now, it doesn't mean they accept God, but they can see very clearly that God is just and fair. Now, let's put this up here now. Notice he says, your judgments have been revealed. We began last week and we finished today that the judgment process is a process in time. It begins with what we call the pre-advent judgment. We looked at that last week. That begins in 1844. We, we started that last week. That's going on now. We don't know when it's going to end. It ends when Christ's return. When Jesus returned, that process is finished. Finishes just before that. He comes for his people. 
Now, what's the purpose of that part of the great process? Well, that's for God's angels. Who is coming to pick up God's people? The angels. All of heaven is empty. These are created beings. These beings, fortunately, they chose God rather than the devil, like a third of the angels chose. These are not beings who, who, are, who, are, un- who are, these are created beings. These are not like God. God made these beings. They need to understand all the issues in this great, great battle that's been raging. They are coming for God's people. This judgment begins in 1844 and it ends and they come for God's people because they understand very clearly. Why should we we pick this brother? Well, well, look at the life. He, He accepted Jesus. Now look at what happens when a person accepts Jesus. They are completely transformed. Their hearts are new and so on. They're not just professing to follow Christ. They really follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They're not just what we call a skin Christian who claims to be a Christian. They are a follower of Jesus. They understand these issues. Well, what about the next part? This is called the millennial judgment. We just talked about that. During the thousand years, God's people participate in judgment. They must understand all the issues. Many of them weren't alive during this time of the first part, of course. They must understand. It begins when Christ comes that begins the thousand years and it ends at the end of the thousand years. What's this for? This is for the benefit of God's people. They must understand the issues. Now we come to the last part. It begins at the end of the thousand years before the great white throne. And this is called the great white throne judgment. When it ends, evil will end. There will be no more evil. Why does God have this part? Because he wants those who cling to sin and those who have given up sin to understand some very important issues. You see, this is why this subject is in the Bible. Not just so that we can say this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. No, no, no. It's all in the context of judgment because we must understand that God is always doing the right That's the way Abraham put it. Shall not the judge of the earth do right? We must understand what sort of a God is running this universe. So this is for the good and evil. They must understand. And you can imagine, we get to the end of this judgment. Let's just put it here. Love is like a double-sided coin. On one side of the love coin is mercy. God is a merciful God. That's love. But if you have no justice, you don't have love. You have wishy-washy, sentimental stuff. No, no, no. True love is both merciful and just. And that is God. And how do we know that? One great event, Calvary. Because at the cross of Calvary, God was both just and he was both merciful. Because he took the sin. And the wages of sin is death and he died. Calvary is the great pivotal point in this great conflict. Now, you imagine... We go back here. When that judgment is finished, you just think, you're all inside the city. You're all inside on that day. But I'm outside. You've just seen the great panoramic, whatever it is, the way God's going to show us everything in in time during this judgment at the final. And you see Satan and you see me and all the others who cling to sin fall down and say, God, you are just and you are fair. We agree with that. We can see that and we acknowledge that. Do you think that that God is unfair in what he's about to do? No, not when you hear it from the devil and not when you hear it from those who cling to sin. You can see and you can hear that these people acknowledge that God is just and fair. That's one of the great reasons God has this. All right, let's come on. 
You see justice and mercy at the cross. Here is how the Bible puts it. Every creature which is in heaven, those who follow God, and on earth, and under the earth, meaning the powers of evil, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honour and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now when we hear that from everybody, we will not think that God has not been fair. And then God has to do that which God does not want to do. I can almost see at this point in this drama Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit in a human understanding with their head in their hands, sobbing, great tears welling up in the, in the heart and the eyes of God, sobbing because of what has to take place next. How do I know that? Because when Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem, and he could see with his prophetic eye the terrible carnage and destruction that would take place to these Jewish people who clung to sin and would not turn to God. The Bible says Jesus wept. And he cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often would I have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you wouldn't let me. You see, that's the picture we have of God, head in hand, sobbing his heart out, and he has to say what God has to say because evil must be put down. He says, let the fire fall. And the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Evil is totally eradicated. No more devil, no more death, no more those who cling to known sin. It's like we have to do when we have a sheep cull. There are some animals that if left will corrupt the rest, so they have to be culled. This is a, a small illustration of what has to... God has given plenty of opportunity. He's loved people, even unto death, but they refuse, and so for the safety of the whole universe, they are completely destroyed. Those who cling to, this string, to sin are completely destroyed. Nothing will be left. Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. This is not something God delights in. I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways is the plea of our, God, our great God. How do we know that he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked? Go to Calvary and see the love of God. For a world. And then God, after the fires have done their work, God creates a new world, a new heavens and a new earth. Not a different world, but a remade world. Because Jesus made a promise to his followers. He said, the site of earth's last empire will be this planet. Jesus said, the meek will inherit the earth. John puts it this way, now I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. And my friends this morning, this is a solemn subject. I agree. But I thank God. He loves us so much that he puts it in the Bible so you and I can make a choice. You and I can make a course correction in life. You see, the choice is yours and mine. We will be in one of two places on this final day.
We will either be outside the city wishing we were in, or we will be inside the city thanking God for Calvary love that we accepted. That's the great two positions that God is pointing all people to. There is coming a day when we will all be alive, either in the city or outside of the city. I trust today that we make the choice for eternity. It happened on September 11, 2001. Daniel Guzman lived in Jamaica, and she liked the party life. She liked the weekends when you party on, you get drunk and you carry on and all that stuff. And because she liked the party life, she decided to leave her husband and her young daughter and move to New York City so she could have more partying. And that was her life, party, party, party in New York. Well, there came that day, that fateful day when she went to work up high in one of those Twin Towers. And she was there when the plane smashed next door first into the other twin, other building of the Twin Towers, and then they struck her tower. She says for many, for, for a long time, I think it was over an hour, we wondered what to do. What should we do? We didn't know what to do. Should we go down? Should we stay? Well, surely the thing wouldn't burn. What should we do? So they milled around for ages talking about what to do. And then finally they realized they'd better get out of here. So she said, we began the long, long descent via the stairs because the lifts were out and we walked down as a group. She said, we got to floor 13 when everything began to swivel around and she said, then it was pitch black. The whole twin tower that she was in collapsed on top of her and everybody else. She said, when I woke up, down, 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 she said, I was all alone. My friends who walked down with me were dead. But I was pinned under a great uh, beam of concrete and it was pitch black and all I could smell was the smell of like fuel and death. And there I was in the dark, she says. And she said, so I began to bargain with God. God, you get me out of here and I'll be a good girl. And she said as the hours wore on, she began to realize how hollow that was, not just to God, but she began to realize it was hollow to herself. She was trying to bargain with God, and she realized she may never get out of this hole. So she said as the hours wore on, I began to realize what life was all about. Life really was about connecting with God and she said I was a long way from God but as those hours wore on she began to talk seriously to God and she said God after a while she said I don't really care if I don't get out of here what I want God is I want you to take my past and forgive it I want you to give me a new life even if I die in a few hours time Lord I want to connect with you because I can sense now from my background, my Sunday school and so on, that you are really a loving God and God, I have let you down so badly. Ganielle finally got to the position where she said, God, take my life and come into my life. Well, it was almost 24 hours later that one of the men looking over all this rubble and combing the rubble to find is there anybody alive around here he saw a hand sticking up out of the rubble way way down in a hole and uh, he felt the pulse when he climbed way down there and felt the pulse of this hand and he could feel the pulse
And so they began a great rescue for this woman trapped under the rubble. And hours later, she was pulled to safety. And Ganiel has been faithful to what God did in that hole. He rescued her and she continued to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to Ancient Mysteries with Pastor Gary Webster on Faith FM. Join us again same time next week to discover more ways in which the history of our world confirms the Bible and its messages of the past and future. Right around Australia, you're listening to Faith FM. Faith FM.